Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Coughlin, and welcome to the Socks on 35th podcast. We are back with another exciting episode covering your Chicago White Sox. As always, I'm joined by our panelists, Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. We will also be joined by special guest Nick Mowowski uh, later in the episode. But for now, gentlemen, how are we doing? I won Sox math. That's that's the only highlight from the week for me. I'll be honest with you. Like, <laughs> I, I didn't enjoy this week of baseball. I don't know if anyone else did. I, I didn't. Yeah, I mean, it, it was rough. It was the kind of thing where the games that they won. Well, I, I went to the game on Friday. That was fun. The Robert walk-off. But other than that, the games that they played well in, I was always busy and didn't get to watch. Like the first Yankees game of the doubleheader, for example. Or also the one before that. And the games that they lost were the ones that I had free time and had it on either in background or just watching. So one of those weeks and, you know, three and three is like, it's not the worst. You know, when you look at the schedule, you see at New York and versus Miami, you probably take that. But at the same time, you know you should have done better. So. It's annoying, but whatever. And I think that's the reality of it, too. And we'll get into it, into it more. I don't want to ruin the whole episode, but it's how you went three and three, right? Three and three. Yeah. On the surface, sounds fine. It's how you did it um, that I think becomes the most frustrating part of the week. See, I will say if I'm going to be uh, if I'm going to do the flip side of that, it's nice to at least be critiquing how we're winning compared to just talking about us losing all the time. Fair. So I'm, I'm trying to still have the glass half full effect. You know, as I've said before, the White Sox are just doing enough to keep me locked in. And another one of those weeks, just doing enough, not winning games they should have and uh, not closing out series. But we'll get into that because we have quite a bit to cover. And I'm sure Nick will have plenty to say about that. But before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the website at SocksOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SocksOn35th. And without further ado, our interview with Locked On podcast host, Nick Murawski. All right, guys, we are now joined by Locked On host, Nick Morawski covers the Chicago White Sox over there. He also does Good Guys Talk Back. He's been doing that podcast for quite a while. Nick, it's an honor to have you on the show. Um, it's kind of a coming age thing. I remember being on your show a couple years ago, so it's really cool to be able to bring you over here. Let's just just start now. How did you become a White Sox fan? How did you become the Nick Morawski that we know today, who is pretty strong in his White Sox opinion and pretty strong on the podcast game? Yeah, uh, well, thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. You know, I my parents are were diehard White Sox fans. Uh, my grandparents were White Sox fans. My great-grandparents were White Sox fans. They grew up, a pocket of my family grew up on the south side of Chicago. By the time I was born, I grew up in, uh, you know, in Orland Park, uh, southwest suburbs, and then later uh, Lockport. I mean, that was just the language what we spoke. Ed and John Rooney were on the radio uh, in summers when we were driving around. The Hawk and Wimpy were on the TV in the evenings. You know, my dad, you know, religiously read the paper in the morning and would just spit out stats. And, you know, I can't believe this and what happened here. And I mean, we just my brothers and I just we were uh, just inundated from the beginning, born into it. Uh, and 
that uh, you know late '80s and that 1990 team, which has been captured so well, of course, by the last Comiskey folks. Uh, that was man. That's when everything started to unlock. Robin Ventura, uh, Frank Thomas, uh, Jack McDowell. Uh, they were an exciting team. And when I got older, you know, you start appreciating. Everybody says like, "Look, I, I, I've been a White Sox fan all my life," and it's probably true. But when do you really start following? the team and start watching. And I was probably nine, 10, eight, nine, 10, something like that. And then, and then it evolves, your fandom evolves. You start really appreciating uh, some of the nuances of the game. And, and I played baseball, you know, almost all my life through, through high school. I played four years in high school. I pitched and, um, you know, listening now to Steve Stone talk about, it's like, wow, I wish I would have paid attention when I was in high school. And I was a player because some of the things he says, I just, I wish I had that mindset. And so every year, you know, I feel like I've just been able to pick up more as a fan, but, you know, it really started, you know, from my parents and their love and passion and, and their memories for the White Sox and just, man, it just continued and it just caught fire, uh, you know, as I grew older. Extremely relatable, man. I feel like everybody kind of take a little bit piece of that, especially baseball fans. As a guy who pitched to myself, one of the biggest things I learned from watching the game as I got older was pitch sequencing. And that was something that was just wasn't even on my mind when I was that age because I was just trying to throw the best pitch every single time. So I definitely understand where you're coming up, uh, coming with that. And it's it's always great. It's always great hearing the stories about how people become fans and people really fall in love with the game because I, I think there's a lot of people, especially in kind of the modern day, that just don't really give baseball a chance. They look at it as some, something boring, but there's just so much that goes in every decision that's made in the game. And I just I've always respected that. Kind of moving forward, uh, obviously, you've been doing the podcast for a while. Uh, Good Guys Talk Back. That's where I originally heard of you um, and, you know, talked with you on Twitter and everything like that. And then obviously you uh, ended up starting to do the uh, Lockdown Socks as well. Um, What kind of made you decide, you know, as a fan that, you know, maybe I should start kind of getting my opinions out there. Maybe maybe people actually enjoy some of the things I have to say. You know, I uh, was a radio broadcast major in college and undergrad. I, I studied radio and TV. I did college radio. I called uh, college baseball games. I did uh, play-by-play. So I fell in love with that uh, from from that side of things. And I did some internships in, in Chicago at some radio stations. And I really thought that was good. You know, it was going to be something that I was going to do. And it just didn't kind of pan out. And I went down different paths. And I got serious into uh, improv in Chicago. I was, I was, I was at second city. I was at IO. I was at annoyance theater. I was performing. I was like a full-time actor in Chicago. And then I, I got into elementary education. I became a teacher for, for a dozen years. And in the fall of 2018, I just, I had some stuff going on in my personal life and I needed a creative outlet. I was like, I was kind of missing a creative outlet. I needed something. And I just felt like the White Sox, of course, weren't being represented the way I wanted them to be represented on on 1000 or on 670. No disrespect for them. We were in a tough spot in 2018 with the White Sox. Okay, and I I just I wanted to hear a fan perspective point of view. I, I, I was I live and die with every inning, with every pitch, with every game. And that's my fandom. You know, and and then I and I wear that to a fault. That's just how I'm wired. I've tried to change it. I can't change that. So I wanted to put something out there, and uh, you know, hey, maybe people can relate to this. Maybe it can hit them 
in, in a way that uh, I have been in hit with this team. And so it's become therapeutic. It, it became really a therapy thing. And, you know, I, I just, I, I, hey, if nobody listens, that's great, you know, but I'm putting something out there, you know, and I'll continue to put out. And I think it kind of caught on. Uh, so we're, this was our first, fifth season, believe it or not, that we've been doing this uh, with my co-host, Pat Hester, who I went to college with and did college radio with and who's been a diehard Sox fan all of his life. And then last season, before last season, Sean Anderson, who was doing uh, Lockdown Sox, uh, he just could not, you know, he, he wasn't going to do CHGO and Lockdown at the same time. And uh, he contacted me and said, you know, I'd like to refer you, uh, you know, to pick up Lockdown and a couple interviews later. And, uh, you know, here I've been doing this for uh, it feels like forever with the way this team has been playing. But um, that's kind of the long and short of it. And I think you kind of pick up on what kind of gets a lot of people into it in the first place. Like I have this angle that I think I can bring. And you see when everyone tries to join in and they try and find, you know, I want to get my thoughts out there. I want to get my opinion out there. It's like, what are you going to do that's different? What are you going to do that? This is my style. This is my brand. And I think those who have been successful like yourself, it's like you, you find that niche, whether it's some of the background you have in the industry, but also just the background as a fan and someone who's knowledgeable about the game. I think you kind of hit it perfectly. It's like you find your voice the way you want to represent it, the way you feel it's not being represented. I think that's the coolest part of it. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point, Jordan. And I think anytime you do anything creatively, it's like, well, what, what's going to separate me? You know, uh, how is this going to make some noise in, in sometimes a, in a crowded field? And it wasn't as crowded as it is right now back in the fall of 2018. Uh, I think one of our first recordings uh, for Good Guys Talk Back, it was honestly the Manny Machado color of his glove and how <laughs> things could go maybe the White Sox way because it looked like he had a black and white glove in some photos. So in a, in a way, Good Guys Talk Back was born in anger when that didn't happen and then Bryce Harper didn't happen. And, and here we are now um, talking about two playoff wins, not series wins, uh, uh, now uh, here in uh, June of 2023. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's really wild how quickly uh, things can kind of get off the rails. Um, actually, on, on the last episode, I went on a rant just about not being able to take a chance on a guy like Harper, take, you know, really go dive in and give the money that Manny Machado wants. But it's just kind of part of being a White Sox fan. You know, and I think you understand that just, you know, just as much as any of us, you know, it, it comes with a lot of baggage in the sense of, Yes, it's nice when this team is good. It's nice when this team has prospects, but then you kind of really see that nothing is going to supplement that. And by the time they try to supplement it, it's almost a, uh, a it's almost like a like a last second type of move to try to save salvage whatever is there. And, yeah, I, I've seen so much over the years. I've seen absolutely so much, and how they handle their free agents, how they, or I should say, how they handle you know uh, players that are going to hit free agency. How do they how do they handle the free agent market? Just everything I've seen a lot. And, and I knew that when I started good guys talk back and definitely locked on, like I'm here for good. Like I I'm, I, this isn't just going to be, I'm going to do episodes when it's fun and, and they're winning. Uh, I, I'm here to give it, here's the facts folks. Like this is what's happening. You know, I can give you the reality. And sometimes folks will say, why are you so negative? You could take it that way, but this is how it is happening for this white sax team. So it's black and white, literally and figuratively. 
Yeah, no, I, and that's what I've always respected about your style. Um, you know, I do notice that there are people who do kind of pop in and out when this team is good or bad. And I've always, I've always kind of been the same way, whether they're good or bad, I'm going to end up watching them. I'm going to end up getting way too committed into it. I'm going to hit points where I think this team's going to turn around and then be disappointed in the long run. Like we usually are. But uh, speaking of, you know, buying in, being disappointed, this past week of White Sox baseball has been uh, a roller coaster ride of sorts, um, you know, especially with the way this Miami series just ended. Uh, three very winnable games, and for us to only grab one of them is incredibly disappointing, um, especially with how both Michael Kopech and Lucas Giolito pitched over this past weekend. Um, yeah, uh, so just kind of getting everybody's thoughts. Uh, Nick Auer, I'll start with you here, buddy. Um, how are you feeling about this past week, White Sox baseball? What, what's what's the vibe? I mean, it's frustrating, which is difficult because when you look at the schedule and you see they won three and three this week, kind of like what we were just saying on the brief intro before Nick joined us, like that's not bad considering the teams they were playing, but watching the games and, you know, following what should have happened, you know, they could have been four, four and two or even five and one. So it's frustrating. And it's also just the way that they're losing that that is painful for the most part It's the offense. I think consistently we can all agree that even during their winning streak, the offense was scoring, you know, two, three runs and getting bailed out by the pitching being very good. And then, of course, on Sunday's game, you have the offense actually having an okay game. You know, five runs is is nice. But uh, for once, the bullpen for the first time, it feels like a long time, the bullpen was the one that came in and, and couldn't hold it. So it's frustrating because when you have dug a hole so deep that the White Sox have, like we say every week, there's very, very little room for error, even when the Twins aren't really running away with anything. So you kind of needed to go four and two. and or five and one and you didn't and now with the dodgers and mariners both on the road this week that's another tough schedule or another uh, couple tough teams i should say where you wouldn't be surprised if it's a losing week so it is what it is they're kind of doing the classic white Sox thing of doing just enough to keep you watching but not enough in either direction and think of the vibes of it too for them it's like all right you know, I think it was Berger who talked about it right before the Yankees series like we needed that win against detroit right before we went to new york now you have the exact other side of the coin where it's you just lost two games. You should have one. You had three outs to get with a lead and you lost both of them. Now you have a day off. Now you got to sit with it that extra day. We, we've all played baseball. We know how that feels. Now, mag, now increase the magnitude to whatever it feels as a major leaguer. Now you got to go play L.A. Who's just even on a down year as a powerhouse. And then you got to go play Seattle. It's like the fact that they lost these games is one thing. But again, when you talk about the vibes as a fan, that's one thing. When you talk about the vibes now that you have to control in a clubhouse, it's a lot on Grafal's plate right now to make sure that he and the leaders in that clubhouse, it's like we got to literally forget about this as quickly as possible. And the rest of the schedule is not going to be kind to you just because you, you had a couple bad games that you should have won. It was uh, such a – I really was impressed with the starting pitching, especially in the Miami series. I mean, maybe two earned runs over, you know, however many innings. Uh, and the starting pitching ha- has been pretty good, aside from Lance Lynn. Uh, and, and the bullpen has turned things around. And the meltdowns on Saturday and Sunday, to the points that have already been made, you have to win those games. This team needs to win on the margins. Uh, you know, they're staying afloat because of a forgiving AL Central, you know, which I'm sure we can, you know, talk more about. Um, I've just, you know, even going into Miami, I was like, well, you know, they're kind of the way they're winning. I just don't think is sustainable. 
you know, and, and then they explode for some runs on Sunday and you have back-to-back doubles. Romy Gonzalez comes through, you know, Jake Berger with maybe his first hit of the whole series. He was pretty quiet this past weekend. And then, and then Robert with his 15th bomb and it's like, great. Okay. All right. Three, one was nice. Five, one, this can't happen again. So th- that is uh, an excellent point, Jordan, of a first-year manager in Grafold again has to somehow control the vibe in the dugout as they head out west, which has been very unkind to the White Sox over the last several years, and, and keep everything calm. And, you know, T.A. didn't play on, on Sunday. That situation on Saturday what is that three, four, how many times is in that moment has that happened to TA in a critical situation where he has to make that play. There are a lot of things going on behind the scenes that I think with, you know, Liam going on the 15 day IL now that it's kind of nice that they've got this day off. It's maddening for fans and, you know, having this fester, but they have to just take a couple deep breaths because they're going uh, into six games that are going to be really rough. And then Texas, when they come back home. And you talk about the sustainability aspect of it too, and the starting pitching and the relief pitching and how they were winning over the past three weeks in relief pitching, the Sox have faced the seventh most batters in high leverage situations in the past two weeks. It's the fifth most batters. You talk about unsustainable ways of winning. You're consistently putting your team in high leverage situations where they have to be perfect. And you see what happens on Saturday when they're not. You, you give them a one-run one lead and a taxed bullpen, and you blow it. And then everyone's like, well, it was a 5-1 lead Saturday. But think about it. Because you lost on or on Sunday, it was a 5-1 lead. Think about it. You, you lost Saturday, so now Sunday's must win. So you want to put your high-leverage guys in there. But they're tired because of all the high leverage innings that they've been used for. It's a bad cycle that you can't get yourselves out of at this current point. There's like, yes, think about why they lost Sunday is kind of partially related to why they lost Saturday, which Saturday moves into the past couple. It's, it's this cycle of you're not seeing names other than Kendall Graveman, Keenan Middleton, Joe Kelly, Liam Hendricks on the mound. That, that's, that's all you're seeing on the mound every single day, every single game. And, and it's like, you can't expect that to hold up. You're going to have games like on Sunday where Graveman gives up a couple runs. He's been perfect for like a month and a half. Like that's going to happen. Joe Kelly having a meltdown. That's going to happen. You minimize those when you don't make them pitch every two games, three out of four games. Like it, it all, for me, it all comes back. I know we want to blame the pitching and they deserve some blame for these past two losses. I know everybody wants to blame the pitching. You have to look deeper and see why they were in for these situations, why they might be, their their stuff might not be as sharp, why things might not be going their way. goes back to the fact that, again, seventh most batters over the past three weeks in high leverage, fifth most over the past two weeks. That is an unsustainable amount of high leverage innings. It's, it's absolutely unsustainable. And, you know, I think you make, I make, I think you make some really good points there, Jordan. Um, you know, especially when it comes to how many high leverage innings that these guys have to play because we either aren't scoring enough runs or, you know, our starting pitcher starting pitching is just getting us by because we, you know, simply put, we aren't scoring runs, I guess, to kind of just double down on that point. Um, yeah, you know, I think I think there is blame to go around, but obviously the elephant in the room is that the White Sox just are not sustainable on offense right now. They have these explosions, you know, they have these good runs. They have these times where they are um 
they take advantage of situations like we had in right field, you know, with the with the Jake uh, with the Jake Berger ball just falling or the Luis Robert double. But then we have Andrew Vaughn come up to the plate the very next at, at bat and just strike out in three pitches. You know what I mean? That's that's the type of stuff that we can't deal with. And it's stuff that happens a little bit too often. You know, it's just way too hot and cold. Um, you know, I, I do think when it comes to the bullpen and this is hopefully something that really isn't going to be like a long-term lingering issue, but it's something that I've complained about quite a bit on this podcast when it comes to Grafal and it's him using high leverage guys in situations where it's not high leverage on, on days where he thinks, okay, maybe this guy needs to go pitch an inning, you know, and then you have situations where, you know, say like earlier in the season, you know, and I brought this game up quite a bit and it's something that I just worry is going to bite us later where we have like a nine run lead on the, on the Pittsburgh Pirates and we have Joe Kelly on the mound. You know what I mean? Like those are situations that they're going to bite us later. And, you know, we're starting to see with how many high leverage innings we just pitched this past week in the past three weeks. If we have a situation where we're really starting to, you know, get going on offense, I don't want to see those high leverage guys for a little bit. I think they do need some time to get their, get their arms right to be able to come in. And if they have to pitch in three games in a row in tight situations, they're able to, because I just feel you know, trying to keep these guys fresh by putting them in games like that can end up being something that could kill a team in August and September. You know, maybe I'm thinking a little too far ahead about that, but I think it's something we need to watch with Grafal. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a mindset of this White Sox team is going to be in a lot of close games. There aren't going to be blowouts. So you have to think if there's an eight-run lead, seven-run lead to get a guy – uh, some work that should be bullpen work. That should be a side session. That shouldn't be game time because you know, your white Sox team. And we all know it as fans when they score seven or eight runs, they're going to be quiet the next day. It's going to be a one run game. So, and maybe Grafol hasn't figured that out. I, you know, I don't want to dump too much on him, but I haven't really been that impressed. You know, it's just kind of like, eh, you're a first year manager trying to figure it out. So, Okay. Yeah, I mean, and that's I'm kind of in the same boat. Like, I, I don't want to just sit here and try to point it like critique little things with Grafal because genuinely he didn't inherit the greatest situation. Um, and especially with how April went, it's so hard to dig yourself out of that hole. And to the Sox credit, we've done better than we obviously did in April. Low bar, I know, but we've kind of started to crawl a little bit out of the basement and playing in the AL Central does make that a little bit easier. But we just we need to build a consistency with this team so we know exactly what we are in any given any given game, you know, something I was waffling about a little bit on the last podcast was the fact that we just can never bring it all together. It feels like in, in one game, you know, even with the starting pitching, you know, pitching as well as it does, we'll have a game where we do score five, six runs and then the pitching will fall apart. You know what I mean? And that's kind of similar to what we saw in the Miami game and not that we can put a lot of blame on the, on the bullpen or the relief pitching that situation, but it's like, it's kind of like this Murphy's law where it's like, man, the offense finally gets going. And then it's just one of the three phases falls apart. And it's just, it's so frustrating. It's something we've been seeing since 2021, you know, probably early, even before that, but it's just, it, it seems like it's very hard to get out of that rut. And even when this offense does score runs, that's when the, that's when the pitching decides, Oh, well, we don't, we're not used to pitching with, with a lead like this. So, but Regardless, um, you know, speaking on the pitching side of things, I know we've been giving the starting pitching a lot of credit. And Nick, you brought this up uh, earlier with your starting pitching point. But with uh, in regards to Lance Lynn, um, this is something we've been discussing on the podcast for the last few weeks. Um, obviously, the DFA conversation starts getting a little louder after every start like this. But, you know, for the sake of finding another starter that does make that very difficult, especially with a guy like, you know, Davis Webb, who's out for the entire season. 
Um, what is a situation here where you think Lance Lynn can turn it around? Or do you think we are where we are with Lance Lynn and we have to move on and make a move? Well, I, I think the thing with Lance Lynn is, uh, does he do... Does he look at like video? Does does he and Ethan Katz sit down and kind of look at well, where did I miss? How did I miss? How did I get hurt? And and I don't know if the thing is, I don't know if he can be better. He talks about I need to be better. I need to make better pitches. And you know, I his cutter, his variation of his cutter, it, it's the cement mixer lately that just is hanging middle middle. And he's getting just absolutely mashed, as he should. I mean, he did against uh, the LA Lane, uh, the Angels, which, of course, you're going against Trout and Otani. They're going to do that to most pitchers, but especially to Lance Lynn. It happened in the Yankees game, uh, but the offense kind of bailed him out. I, 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 again, there's a lot of like Dallas Keuchel references being thrown around in social media. And I even go back further to uh, John Danks in 2016, where he just was cooked. He was at, he was just done, you know, his, he just didn't have it. And the socks were, they started out great in 2016 and they needed, they couldn't just have a place to like, well, we'll take a loss when he comes around. Like they were really trying to make a go and then things fell apart with this socks team. I mean, yes, they're going to hang around in the AL central because that's what the division is going to let them do. But if they really want to be serious I, I just don't see how you can continue to go with a, a non-competitive Lynn unless he really change, unless he completely changes his approach. But I haven't seen it lately. Like it's the same thing. He's doing the same thing, making the same mistakes. And that's, what's really maddening and infuriating from a fan perspective is I thought you were going to get better at that. That was the same pitch you made on an O2 count. And you would you what you think was going to happen like these guys can hit even if it's an eight or nine hitter they're gonna they're gonna take care of that stuff that you're throwing middle middle yeah it's it's an interesting situation because i totally agree that i want to see him you know try something new and and change his approach i mean obviously the current one isn't working at the same time i'm not 100 percent sure if he can just because what has made lynn so successful in the last four or five years in particular as we all know is that he became so fastball reliant to the point where he was pretty much only throwing different variations of fastballs. And now he's working in his sweeper and uh, his curveball against lefties. That was pretty effective last year, but they just, when they're not on, they just hang in the middle of the plate and are so hittable. So then the hitters can either sit on the fastball and just react when they get a 75 mile per hour middle, middle sweeper, or, you know, they sit on that, I guess, and just crush it. But it's really, it's tough for him because you also look at the teams the White Sox are facing and that he's facing. I mean, it's just juggernaut offense after juggernaut offense these next few weeks and, and the past couple as well. So if you're looking for him to bounce back, you're really not going to get it anytime soon. So what I'm kind of wondering is maybe once the schedule kind of dies down, I mean, the teams will stay tough, but the offenses get a little better when July comes around. Maybe at that time, if Lennon is still sporting like a six or seven ERA, you really do say, you know what, Jesse Schultons can, can do this or Nate Fisher can do this too. But until then, I feel like right now is probably not a good time just because whoever you call up is probably going to get shelled by these teams either way because by nature, they're like, you know, AAA starters, not real prospects. So that's kind of what I'm curious to see is when July comes around and the offenses get easier, will they do something, especially if they're still in the race, if they're still less than, you know, four or five or fewer than four or five games back? Uh, that That's what I'm waiting for, really. I think that's 
the exact point I have is what's that tipping point of, all right, we can get this from someone in the minors because we, we've seen Lynn put up good numbers against like the guardians who have a brutal offense. He can still put together good starts, but Schultons can probably do that too. So it's like, and I think starting against the Dodgers is a great place to look for. It's like, you got, you got to see what you got here. Like if you can't handle these teams and all you can do is beat the bad ones. Well, we got, couple guys in the mind who can probably string that stuff together we can just go that way i don't know it's a consistently changing situation i think the stuff has just seen enough of a drop off to where you got to reinvent yourself on the fly and i don't know how someone who has been a big fastball guy is going to be able to do that quickly we've seen how long it takes for a guy like cease to make mechanical changes in season i don't know how you reinvent yourself as a pitcher over the course of a season necessarily I, and I think you make a good point with that, Jordan. That's kind of the key is being able to reinvent yourself on the fly. Um, you know, because something we've suggested before is potentially him starting to attack the, the lower part of the zone a little bit more. Cause you know, with him being a high velocity fastball guy through a good portion of his career and really being fastball heavy with different variations of it, he's always attacked the top of the zone, you know, especially on the strikeout pitch. And really where a lot of these guys, once they start losing their velocity, you know, you start looking at some of these journeymen who have made it to 38, 39, 40 years old in the, in the majors, they've really kind of started to turn into ground ball pitchers. And that's where Lan- that's, that's Lance's really only real shot. I feel like to make it and kind of return to any sort of uh, glory that he was once at is he needs to start attacking the bottom of the zone. I don't want to see any more high fastballs that are just going to float. And to be totally honest with you, and I love the idea of him switching it up with new pitches. If I never see another Lance Lynn sweeper ever again, I will be totally fine with that because I have seen that pitch just just float over the plate. And it is just the most it's just the most heart inducing thing I've ever seen. So I really think with Lance, like the big thing with him is he just needs to start really adjusting who he is as a pitcher. Realize the strikeout numbers probably aren't ever going to get back to where they were. That velocity is probably not going to get back to where it was and uh, start start working within yourself with what you have. You know, as long as you're able to place your pitches Start throwing them low. If they start sitting low, you know, start working a little bit more to the middle of the plate with anything with movement. But really, I just don't need to see any more high fastballs because they're just being put on a tee at this point. And it's that's really where he starts falling apart and and starts. At least that's my that's my opinion. But yeah, no, I just I really think uh, I think Lance is a polarizing, polarizing guy to talk about because overall he's been a, uh, a fan favorite. And, you know, obviously every team needs five starters and, you know, genuinely we just don't really have that right now outside of the minors. And it's hard to gauge how willing this team is to start picking up guys that they like in AAA and really bringing them to the majors because they don't want to a stunt their growth, you know, because they see them as a potential long-term piece or b if they still have this idea that they want to contend, you know what I mean? Because usually when you're trying to contend within the season, you're not trying to bring up guys. You're not trying to use options. You're trying to be a little bit more aggressive per se, but unless the white Sox make a move, it's kind of hard to say if they're going to be aggressive or not. You know what I mean? And it's hard to say, you know, I, Kenny Williams can say whatever he wants at the bar about how, uh, how excited he is that this team will win the AL central, but it's hard to, it's hard, it's hard to actually, you know, see it unless this team actually decides that a guy like Lance Lynn is going to be held accountable as much as we all like him. But um, moving forward here, Jordan, I'll let you start off the top with this um, because I know your favorite thing to talk about is the lineup and especially the leadoff of the lineup, um, as we've as we've all heard this past year. 
Um, at what point do you really consider, you know, a guy like Tim Anderson or Andrew Benintendi kind of getting moved around in the, in the lineup? I know Benintendi has kind of been moved really everywhere outside of the three or four hole, because obviously you can't bet somebody with no home runs in those spots. But um, Tim, that's kind of the big one. You know, do, do we continue to see Tim in the lead up? I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I, as a long time, not necessarily total believer in Tim Anderson in the leadoff spot, I don't have much of a concern moving him, to be completely frank. I, I, I think for, as a, from a fan perspective, this has been the most frustrated I've been in what we've gotten from Anderson over the course of however many years he's been with the team. The, the clubhouse leader, the guy, the leader, that th- this is your guy right here. And this is what we've gotten from him so far. It hasn't been a ton. It really hasn't been super productive. A bunch of singles at the top of the lineup, not really working any walks, not really working any counts. I mean, he's hitting 300 over the past 15 games. Okay. Is that enough? I don't know. I I haven't always totally thought it was. The reality is when he's going really well, it's hard to move him out of that spot. At the same time, who else works counts? Who else works at bats? It goes in my... My whole thing about like walks and all, I don't think a lot of people get why I get so fascinated by the idea of walks. It's not so much walks. It's more so it's representative of having a good at bat. Did you work counts? Did you look like you had an approach to the plate? Walks are a tangible form of that. When you're struggling as a hitter, your ability to work counts doesn't change. You you still work at bats. Maybe the hits aren't falling, but you still have productive at bats by working counts when you're a hit first only guy if you're not hitting you're not giving us much on offense and you're getting the most at bats in the lineup while not giving us a ton because you're struggling it's not a great mix and historically tim has taken any naysayers and and stick talk essentially he's done his thing now not so much and now you have to again you're in a situation as a team where every game matters. You don't have the time and the luxury to let him work out of it in this spot. Like You have to make quick changes every once in a while to maximize what you have on every given day. Every game counts. You dug yourselves this hole. You don't have the luxury of, oh, he'll work out of it. No. When Luis Robert's struggling, move him down for a couple days. Then move him right back up. Anderson, if he's struggling, move him down. Then move him right back up. Get the guys who are hitting well the most at bats because you need that to win ball games. It's that simple for me. Yeah, I mean that that is that's well said. I mean the Grafol digging his heels in and and constantly putting Ta at the top and and defending him and that's great. You know that's that you're being positive to the media and and that's the, obviously that's a good healthy thing. Uh, but he definitely moved uh, Luis Robert Jr. eventually. You know, and and that is uh, something that was happening in, in April and May when there was more time. Right now, the, the Sox have got to get things going. They, they've got to find something. I think it's one of the most difficult things in managing uh, is how how do I find the right mix? How, how do I get things to click? And having to know that I can't fall in love with something just because this is traditionally, quote unquote, how it's done or you know, I came into this city and it was TA's team and, and he's the one that got things going. Well, you know, sometimes you have to just say, look, that's not happening the way it used to. And I can't fall in love with the past and the history of it. We've got to win ball games now. What is the best right now for how you are, 
excuse me, how you are in 2023 at this moment, TA, you know, like we haven't seen the, the, the past TA and you might get back there, but for the betterment of this ball club, we've got to make some changes because it's not happening. But then again, where else are you going to find it? I mean, one of the worst teams in, in on-base percentage in all of baseball. Uh, it's, you know, Jordan, you, you hit it right there. It's like a walk gives you so much. It, 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 if the other t- if your team is paying attention, which they should be, you're seeing extra pitches from a pitcher. You're, you're getting an insight into what they're trying to do. You're frustrating a pitcher out there. If you're not biting on some of the things, you know, that they're putting out there for you, it helps in a future at bat for not only yourself, you know, but a teammate. Uh, and of course, you know, it, it, it logs and stresses more, more uh, pitches on a, an opposing pitcher's arm. So there's a lot that goes into it. The Sox just don't have the discipline. I don't know if it's the mindset, if it's the approach. I thought this was all going to be, you know, put in play and different this past off season. And um, I think Grafol is just, I don't know. You know, I think he's really genuinely confused. I don't think he knew what he was getting himself into. I don't think a lot of people are new and he's just, I don't know how to change this. I thought things were going to be a lot different. I saw this lineup when I came in in the fall and I, I don't know what's going on. I, so uh, long story short on that, I, I honestly, I think Tim Anderson is going to stay at one until Grafol figures it out himself that he's got to make a change. Yeah, I agree with you there. I mean, I'm, I'm on board where I would change it, but I don't think it's going to change just because it kind of goes against everything we're full has said his whole MO. And when you talk about who you put in this place, you know, you're both right that it's, it's difficult because nobody is really working counts. Like there are times when I would feel comfortable putting Moncada in that conversation, but he looks like a shell of himself for the past month or so, arguably longer than that. And, um, Benintendi, like he's he's getting on base. He's I think he's at like three forty one. Like it's de- decent. Um, but if you're you know going to su- supply zero power, you'd like to see it a little higher. And obviously he's a lefty and he's a lot better against right-handed pitchers. He would still need someone else to lead off against lefties. So that opens another issue. So it's tough. And and I mean while we're on the subject of lineups, I think that it's been a really hot topic over the last few weeks because of Jake Berger, which I know we've all talked about a lot in terms of, I mean, we all agree that he needs to be in the lineup. I don't think that's that's up for debate anymore, but more so the idea of when everyone's healthy, who do you take out of the lineup, et cetera. And I, I mean, this is, I'm really just using this as an opportunity to complain about something that we don't really talk about ever or someone we don't really talk about. But when Jimenez is healthy and playing right field, which I think, I mean, he hasn't been great out there, but he's been like whatever passable. I don't really see a need for Gavin Sheets to be getting nearly as many plate appearances as he has if you can put Jimenez in right field and Berger at DH because Sheets is down to an 89 uh, weighted runs created plus this year like he's basically your prototypical platoon hitter but he's only average against the opposing side pitcher and obviously he's pretty much unplayable against same side pitchers and when you don't offer much defensive value or speed to go on top of that it's like why are you starting four games a week like I don't understand why that's still a thing at least once Jimenez gets back so in addition to potentially shaking up the lineup. I, I mean, even if Griffold doesn't do that, this is something else you should consider because what you can't keep doing is running out the same lineup, you know, pretty much every day, save for the differences at the catcher position and expecting things to get better. Because as much as I love the talent on the team, even still, you can't just assume they're going to improve without trying something different. 
it's an accountability aspect, right? If if something's and we saw we have seen players get held accountable at different points this season. No one should be immune to that. I think the best teams around the league, there's not a soul on them immune to that. If you're not hitting well, you don't have a right to this spot. You don't have a right to these at-bats. You don't have a right to this position. And again, you you don't have the luxury of time. You lost 10 games in a row at, at the beginning of the season. You lost that luxury straight up. Now, I think one other guy, again, I seem to focus a lot on is because of how interchangeable backup catchers are is Sebi Zavala. Why, why you can't run a backup catcher out there three, four times a week because Grandal is at the back end of his career. You cannot run a backup catcher three, four times a week out there. Who's got a 40% strikeout rate. And does there, there is no amount of game calling in the world that justifies that. Let Carlos Perez try it. There's got to be someone on the waiver wire who can try it. That is such an interchangeable position that that it's just a, a microcosm of an overall unwillingness to change things up when the situation calls for it. I, I get sticking with your guys. I stick. I, I agree with publicly backing your guys in the mind of Griffo. I don't think he's doing anything wrong with that. I, I think it's the behind the scenes of we got to make something up different to do something crazy with this just to shake it up and to show guys like hey no one's immune to accountability on this roster if we have to dfa everybody's favorite backup catcher because he's not hitting we have to do it there's not enough game calling in the world you can't convince me otherwise if it means moving the top two hitters out of their spots in the lineup and putting someone else up there it's doing it like that's the sort of change that that needs to be required and the only other thing I'll say is Clint Frazier for leadoff, man. You heard it here first. <laughs> I was waiting for the waiting for the Clint Frazier point. Just waiting for it. It um, is 2023, and I am standing Clint Frazier as a Chicago White Sox. How did we get here? Like, listen, how, how did this happen? I'm I'm right there with you though, dude. I love Clint Frazier. Like, I I don't know about necessarily making him the leadoff guy, but he's a guy. Every time I see him in the lineup, like, yeah, I just. I breathe. I breathe a sigh of relief. I know I'm going to get a good at bat from him every single time, and that's kind of the yeah. big, that's kind of the important part of it. Um, Nick, I thought you touched on something. Well, Nick Gower, I thought you touched on something really well. Nick, you, Nick Morowski, you also made some great points. I don't want to just, I don't want to side with one Nick over the other. Yeah, way to insult our guest. Nice going. <laughs> Podcasting one hundred and one. Yeah, in a tough spot here, um, but. I do think you made a good point when it came to Ben Attendee um, potentially working in the leadoff because, you know, people could say what they want about his power numbers. People can say what they want about maybe his, you know, on-base percentage isn't as high as they would want it to, which is still pretty high on-base percentage, especially when you consider it on this team that just flat out doesn't get on base. Um, you know, Steve Stone brought it up, and I agree with him on it because he's usually kind of the big Ben Attendee guy in the booth, but – I just I can't remember a bad Andrew Benintendi at bat where he just came up there, just looked absolutely lost the plate, was just swinging away with lazy swings, anything like that. Like even when he's striking out, it feels like he's working himself to account. You know, he's still forcing that extra one or two or you know one or two pitches or fouling off something to get those extra pitches. And when you want to really kind of, it's kind of you know with a starting pitcher, it's kind of like tearing down a tree, man. You gotta you gotta kind of chip away at him. And a good way to do it, even if you strike out or get out on a ground out or anything like that, is taking a lot of pitches. And I think Ben Attendee's done a really good job of that. And I think um, if we are gonna move Tim 
Um, I think there should be a legitimate conversation about potential of Benintendi taking that role because I think, you know, he's good enough on base. He's a guy who can definitely, uh, you know, slap to either side of the field, which is kind of what Tim's been doing this year. You know, we haven't really seen a power surge out of Tim so far. Um, you know, I think it's something that really needs to be discussed. And, you know, overall on the lineup point, you know, and I'll kind of kind of close her, close her out here. But I really think with Griffal holding people accountable, I thought he did a great job with Luis Robert because it was very obvious Luis needed to be held accountable at that point, you know, and it shows, it shows what the results that he gets. Grafal needs to have that consistency across the board. We can't have Luis Robert being held accountable and then have a guy like Yo Mancata absolutely brutal at the plate right now, still playing in the lineup every day because, you know, he's our best shot at third base. You know, when you have a guy like Jake Berger who has earned every single right to play every single day, you know, I, I, I think that's where that discussion starting to come into uh, becoming a little bit louder, especially with the struggles of a Yo Mankata lately, um, you know, and, and with a Tim Anderson, you know, I'm a big Tim Anderson guy. I think a lot of the criticism is a little overblown because of who he is and for how productive he's been the last few years. And usually, you know, when you're a guy that's been at the top and you start kind of falling down a little bit, people are quick to notice that over a guy who historically has never shown those types of numbers, you know, and I think I think Tim, while he can't afford to have bad weeks like he just had, which is, I'm looking at his weekly stats, awful, just unacceptable, too many strikeouts, not getting on base enough, you know, flat out, you need more from your leadoff guy. But I, I think, I think he's a guy that if he moves down to a different spot in the lineup, he's a guy that'll, uh, he'll get it going. I think Tim needs that motivation genuinely. And I think there's this kind of stigma that he can't be coached like that. And I think Tim has always responded to that type of coaching of being challenged of being, you know, told like, Hey, we need you to be better. You know, he's kind of embraced that type of role. And I think holding him accountable would be good, but I just really think Rafal needs to start holding people accountable across the board. It needs to be consistent. There needs to be the correct reasoning behind it. We can't have, we can't pick or choose. Everyone needs to be held to that same standard. And I don't think I'm quite seeing that so far. And I think that's kind of my biggest gripe with it. One, one last thing from lineups um, and Jordan, you'll appreciate this. I'm sure you already know this, but uh, game two of that New York doubleheader, Frazier led off. And I think he had two of the three walks that the White Sox collected. So um, small sample size, but uh, I, I don't mind Frazier up there. I really don't. We've got a believer. We've got a believer. <laughs> All right. Nick, you're welcome on this podcast anytime. Truly. Uh, oh, now you're stroking his ego. <laughs> no, we, we're all we're all big Clint Frazier guys over here. Love seeing a guy like that come back up. All right, well, as we're kind of uh, hitting near the end here, Nick, I do want to get your opinions on uh, what the White Sox are potentially going to do at the deadline because while it's not necessarily tomorrow or anything, it is it is approaching. We need to start kind of thinking about where we're going to go with this team. Um, are there going to be pieces sold off? Are there, is this going to be a team that's going to potentially maybe even on a smaller scale buy? Um, how are you feeling about the White Sox potentially uh, going into the trade deadline? Yeah, there's a lot of different avenues. Um, I have thought recently, can they buy and sell? But I don't trust this organization to be able to manage that and figure that out. But I could see them maybe doing that. I, I can maybe see them selling off while also trying to buy because it's the AL Central. I am not somebody that feels like they should buy to win the AL Central. What they have right now, they should be able to win the AL Central. If you're going to buy, buy to buy to win the pennant, buy to get to the World Series. Do they have enough to do that? Are they going to do that? No. So I don't think you should go ahead and and and, and try to make some crazy moves to you know rise to the top of the AL Central. 
I, I just don't think that's going to happen. I think the central will continue to, to stay in their focus, you know, maybe, you know, pick up an arm or something, you know, you, you get rid of, or you DFA somebody that's just dead weight uh, and, and you find another piece uh, that's, you know, uh, minimal risk, but uh, you know, the whole like Han and, and company should buy, be buyers for what? You, are, are you saying they're going to compete? If you're going to buy, then you better be looking to go to the world series. Uh, and that's just my, my opinion, but for the AL central, I, I don't, I don't think so. At what cost is, I guess I'm, I'm also wondering, like, what are you, what are you going to be giving up just so you can be on top of this average mediocre mountain? You should be able to do that with what you have right now on this team. I, I think the point of, you know, at what cost is the important one where it's like, hey, do you do this? What's the loss as soon as you do it? Because I, I don't think there's enough you can add with the resources you have in the miners to make it really worth it. So don't go trading Colson Montgomery to try and save this team, for example. Like it's 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 not gonna happen. Uh Nick, I'm curious. So the buy and sell points, I uh for the viewers or the listeners too, when I wrote kind of the uh write up for this incentive to Nick, I'm sure he noticed on there I wrote, Can you essentially try and buy and sell? Straight up stole that from one of his tweets when I was looking uh, throughout the week. It's like, oh, that's a really interesting idea. Um, so, Nick, I'm curious, when you talk about maybe the selling aspect of it, how deep would you go? How deep do you think they should look to go in terms of like, if you were to try that buy and sell type thing, how deep would you try and go with something like that in this season at this deadline? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about Lucas Giolito, and uh, it, it's even tougher to have this conversation after the outing he had on Sunday. And I, I have been really impressed with the way he's been pitching this season compared to last season. There's a lot on his mind. There's a lot on his plate with, you know, just what next year could look like. And there's a lot of stuff swirling around him. But if I am believing, and as a fan, I don't have any insight, you know, information. If what has come out is, is accurate, which again, why would it be put out that way? You, you can have some, you have some theories on that, but knowing the, the history of the Chicago White Sox organization, that they do not bring back pitching, you know, John Danks was the big signing where they re-signed John Danks. They let Mark Burley go. We're going to invest in John Danks. They do not retain pitching. They just don't. I'm sorry. Like I, I wish I had, you know, a reason to trust that they'd bring Giolito back. But if, if you're really not going to bring Giolito back and you're thinking, well, I can get something, something that I could put in my rotation right away. Maybe it's not of his caliber, but still for the AL central, I think we can still compete. Then you're not just letting Giolito walk for nothing at the end. You're getting some things and you're still like, you, you know, you're still in it. Um, that's difficult to do though. I know because without Giolito, which I'm negating myself, I don't know if they're going to be able to win the AL central. So I was kind of going down that mindset, uh, Jordan, which is complicated because then you have that you're like, you're arguing with yourself. You're like, Oh, well, that, that happens. Then, Oh, that's not going to happen. So, um, I, I, but in some way, I think that could work. I, I'm wondering about some of these guys though, uh, in the farm system that, you know, might not wear a White Sox uniform. You know, I, I don't know what, what Ramos's future's like and what he can even get you. Um, you know, I think there's other guys that, 
uh, I don't know if you package something up, you're kind of, you're, you're kind of selling that just to get, just get something uh, that can help you out of the pen uh, moving forward. So that, that's where my mind was at. Yeah, no, it's certainly a tough discussion to have, you know, I mean, you can always look at the fact that we're four and a half out, but like you, like you and Jordan both said, you know, it's, do you really want to load up to try to win, want to win the AL central? And, you know, especially with Lucas Giolito, cause that's a guy that I was, I've been thinking about even before the season started about being a potential deadline guy. You really have to look at what's out there to offer. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that's going to be the key is maybe don't go out trying to actively shop a guy like Lucas Giolito, but take those phone calls, at least hear what people have to say, and then kind of try to weigh the positives and the negatives. You know, like, is this a situation where we're going to punt? Well, maybe it might be worth it if a team that is really trying to make a run is willing to give us one of their top prospects. You know what I mean? Like, it has to be it has to be for a good return. We can't just trade Lucas Gilito for the sake of trading him because he's gone after the season, especially if we are still in the AL Central discussion. But if 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 somebody gives us a polarizing offer, absolutely. And uh, also, for the record, Colson Montgomery shouldn't be traded for anything. He's the future of the Chicago White Sox, and I will never hear otherwise. Uh, but, Nick, it's been great having you on the show um it's it's always a pleasure having guys on um you you were somebody that we've been looking at ever since we started up the podcast to get on here um big fan of your work um tell the fans at home where they can find you um podcasts twitter wherever wherever we can find nick morowski yeah thank you guys so much this was such a treat um i uh, i'm on twitter at nick underscore ggtb uh locked on socks is monday through friday uh, it's right there in the morning, every single morning. Um, you can find it on YouTube, subscribe to the channel and, uh, uh, the podcast, the audio is available absolutely everywhere. And uh, good guys talk back is uh, we've been trying to do that Sunday nights. And that's usually it's once a week. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel for that and, uh, find it absolutely uh, everywhere. We're on Twitter. Um, you know, uh, it's a, it's a never ending. It's a, it's almost like a passion project. It's like, I, I just, I don't know if I'll ever get out of this and it's just taking years off of my life, but I absolutely love it. And I can't think of anything else that I would like to do. So, uh, thank you so much for, uh, you know, let me in on this conversation. Not a problem. It's always, it's always great to have guys like you on. And like we said, you were somebody we were, uh, we were definitely looking at when we started up the socks on 35th podcast. So very much appreciate your insight. Um, hopefully, hopefully the next time we talk to you, it's on a little bit better terms with the white Sox. but till then, buddy, it's been great. Thank you guys. Yeah. Hopefully a better brand of baseball for sure. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have this week for the Sox on 35th podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and anywhere else to get your podcasts. Uh, Nick Morowski, um, incredible guy, incredible White Sox mind, um, somebody who truly does have a little bit of that blue collar speak for the fan base type of attitude. Um, it's what I've always appreciated about him. Um, he is a guy who had me on his podcast some years ago as well. Always super cool. One of the real good guys in the White Sox fan base and the White Sox coverage team on Twitter. Um, so very much appreciate having you on, Nick. Yeah. And between Locked on Sox as well as uh, Good Guys Talk Back, he's doing a lot of White Sox podcasting, uh, a lot of good ways to get his opinion. And I think the reality is too, Duke, like you said, he's someone that I think what he says resonates with fans a lot. Uh, the way he says it, how he says it matters. And when you've got two podcasts, uh, it, it kind of shows that you have that voice of the fan base. So Nick, thank you uh, for joining this episode. Yeah, no doubt. He uh, definitely definitely has an intriguing uh intriguing thought process about the white Sox, and you know it shows it shows with how long he's been a fan and um 
though he did some incredible work with uh, the last Kaminsky as well. Um, also, be sure to check out the website at SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoxOn35th to stay up to date with your Chicago White Sox. This has been Duke Coughlin, joined as always by Jordan Lozowski and Nick Gower. We will be back next week as we cover another week of White Sox baseball. Hopefully, we can start closing out series. Thank you, and go Sox. Let's hope this one's better. Go Sox. Go Sox. Go Sox.